Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Captain Wolf, where are you going with that cannon? I haven't given the order to retreat. I'll be damned if I let the British take this hill. You know what, Major? I just want to very quickly oil the wheels of this cannon. They've been squeaking all day. You know how a sound like that can get on your nerves? You don't fool me. You're a coward. Get back in the line, or I'll shoot you myself. Well, how about that whole company in retreat over there? That's the Deep River Sissy Man Company. I knew I couldn't trust them. I'll shoot them too. Who are all the soldiers in flight over there? The Weathersfield Pink Panty Boys. They swore they'd stay the course. Damn their hides. Here's what I have for cowards. You know, I don't even want to mention those guys running down that part of the hill. The Saybrook Yellow-Bellied Oyster-Catching, Nut-Scratching, Fife Drum and Needlepoint Brigade. You gutless dung beetles. Major Hill? Yes, it's a Major Hill. That's why we're fighting so hard to hold it. No, that's your name, Major Hill. I just want to point out that you've shot more of your own men in the last five minutes than the British have. You know, that's a great point, Captain Wolf. Maybe we need to rethink how we understand cowardice and bravery. Maybe get a bunch of philosophers together and talk about Kierkegaard. But for now... Today on the show, the changing face of cowardice. And now he was court-martialed in the Call of Duty video game for desertion. Colin Mack. Actually, I'm very sorry. I'm glad we got that to work. And I'm very sorry to hear Captain Wolf die. Uh, but And, you know, as we go along here today, I'm going to put out the call right now. It'll make more sense as we go along here today. We're going to talk about uh, the question of cowardice, the issue of cowardice, and how it manifests in military situations, but also in life itself, how philosophy thinks about it, how culture depicts it. But I bet you one thing, and we've got great guests, terrific guests, but I bet you one thing that uh, our guests might not be ready to undertake, but some of you might out there. I found myself today as I was just preparing for the show, I was thinking, I wonder what happens in video games. You know, I mean, there's so much, so many things like Call of Duty and stuff like that. I wonder if cowardice actually is sort of dealt with in significant ways in video games. So if you, if you guys are, are there any gamers out there and you're... Um, Actually, you know, able to tear yourself away and use a telephone and things like that. 860-275-7266. But not now. I mean, we'll come to you. We have a lot of stage setting to do. Uh, 860-275-7266 is the number for all calls. Let me tell you uh, who's with us today. Uh, In studio with me is Chris Walsh, acting director of the Arts and Sciences Writing Program at Boston University. Uh, He's the reason we're doing this show. His book is Cowardice, A Brief History. Uh, Gordon Marino joins us from St. Olaf University's studios. He's the director of philosophy and director of the Kierkegaard Library of St. Olaf College and the editor of the quotable Kierkegaard. Brush up your Kierkegaard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, you're going to need it today. Uh, we'll also be talking in just a second to Leslie Gordon, a professor of history at the University of Akron. She's edited and authored several books, including her most recent book, A Broken Regiment, The 16th Connecticut's Civil War. Uh, we'll be talking specifically about how cowardice uh, is, uh, was understood during the Civil War. Also comes up in Chris's book. Chris, I'm going to get you uh, have you get us started here. And one of the places that you start, and I, I actually do remember very keenly this controversy 
which did not happen in the Civil War, although I do have some very clear memories of that as well. But um, at the time of 9-11, there was a lot of rhetoric floating around, as you point out, also at the time of the Boston bombings. But at 9-11, a lot of rhetoric floating around about who was a coward and who wasn't. And Bill Maher got in a tremendous amount of trouble. I'm not a big Bill Maher fan, but I sort of thought... He might have had something here, but he got in a lot of trouble for saying basically, well, you know, you can't really call these people cowards. You're a coward if you're in a submarine somewhere and you launch a missile and it hits a bunch of people you can't see. This is sort of before drones. Uh, That's being a coward. But if you stay in the plane all the way to the end and you die with everybody else, how how do you call these people cowards? He got in a lot of trouble. I I think that was when Ari Fleischer uh, the spokesperson for the Bush administration said people should watch what they say, uh, something along those lines. Uh, and one of his shows eventually kind of, as you point out in the book, didn't stay on the air too much longer after that. But he was raising an interesting point. Like, w- 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 it's, it's something we debate all the time. I mean, cowardice is a term we use kind of to brand people. And that's one of the things that was going on in both of those instances, the Boston bombing and, and the, the terrorist attacks uh, of 9-11. But then there's sort of a, another parsing question, which Maher and his own crew Way was attempting to do right, yeah, yeah, and and you know he he paid for trying to speak strictly at that time when nobody really wanted to speak strictly, and you know on, on the whole I think he was right that those men were not cowards. Call them what you were, what what you will, mm-hmm. um, and it just so happens that coward is maybe the nastiest term we have without without uttering an obscenity, and so that came that became the term of choice. Um, there there might be a way in which. They could be thought of as cowards, and I'd be curious to hear what uh, Gordon Marino has to say about this in particular, but that they had uh, kind of the cowardice of their convictions, those those madmen. They were uh, excessively fearful of being cowardly in in the eyes of their God or in the eyes of people who were uh, driving them on, Um, but... uh, but that's not what people meant when they were when they were calling them cowards, and that was across the political spectrum too. Well, yeah, let's go over to Gordon Marino, but not exactly on that point. But let's go to a, kind of an earlier point. I think Kierkegaard is um, boy, I'm so out of shape on Kierkegaard, but I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna pretend I actually know what I'm talking about. Um, I think Kierkegaard is clear on this about one thing, which is cowardice for a lot of people is something somebody else does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that whatever, however it is, we're going to talk about cowardice. We're probably not going to talk about ourselves. We're going to talk about somebody else's actions. Uh, that's true, but he also said the, t- the term was used very rarely in his in his era, and he was uh, somewhat disturbed about that. He said people will respond to if you call them prideful or something like that, they'll 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 take that and uh and work with you a little bit. But but that he's calling someone a coward was uh, very serious. And uh, at the same time, Kierkegaard thought that pride and a number of other things that we don't associate with coward ca- ca- uh, cowardice are in fact cowardice. Well, then that maybe gets to Chris's point a little bit. And, and so let's explore this at its philosophical edges anyway. So um, and, and this is um, also, I think, embodied pretty well in Hector in the Iliad. You know, there are times when he's very brave and then there are times when he actually flees in the face of Achilles. And then there's at least one other occasion where he basically says that he has to be brave right now because he couldn't live down the dishonor uh, of not having been brave. So, um, Gordon, I'll stay with you for a second. So then the question becomes at the level of philosophy is – is bravery um, really only real when it's interdirected and intergenerated? Uh, is is bravery the same thing when it's effectively the fear of having uh, of being branded a coward? Uh, well, I mean, to return to Kierkegaard, he said that uh, what makes us brave is another fear. So that we're, uh, if, if for example, you're afraid of 
uh, being dishonest that could be because, because of your fear of God, which is wisdom. So uh, I, I think that most people would think that a fear of being a fear of being cowardly wouldn't wouldn't mean you were cowardly. Right. Well, yeah. And, and so, Chris Walsh, in, in your book, and this will, when we bring Leslie into this, I think this will be interesting, too. One of the things you really look at in your book is the way, in fact, a kind of large narrative framework has to be uh, constructed at time of war. Because in, in the more dubious the war or the more unpracticed the war, maybe the more vivid the, the narrative framework has to be. I mean, in the time of the American Revolution, basically you had a lot of people who weren't really soldiers. You've got to get them to be soldiers somehow. You know, their natural inclination at Bunker Hill is to run the other way. Um, and and at the, in the Civil War, I mean, you have some of the same problems, basically, uh, a country fighting a country, yeah. uh, a country fighting over some pretty, abstra- you know, not abstract ideas, but ideas that, that at least required some thinking as opposed yeah. to there's somebody marching into your backyard right now. So, you know, in, in, in each of these situations and lots of others that you document in the book, something else has to be said. And that thing is often about cowardice. Right. It's not uh, a love of country or a desire to be a hero that keep that gets men in, into the field of battle. Uh, and, and when they are in the field of battle, uh, it's uh, it's really not that what drives them forward. Uh, and Leslie can talk about this um, certainly with, with regard to the Civil War. But, yeah, military uh, – students in the military have often known that that uh, it's fear of s- seeming the least worthy among the men present. And I keep using men and we can talk about, yes. about that. But uh, that that's what uh, uh, drives them on. That's what makes them do their duty. Um, I want to add Leslie to this conversation in just a second, but um, while we're with you for a second, we I don't know if we've completely set the stage here. Um, one of the things that's interesting about this book, Cowardice, is that there aren't a lot of other monographs about cowardice, right? This is something that um, although philosoph- uh, cultural historians and philosophers and they write about everything, you know, right. I can probably find about eight books about any seven uh, any of the seven deadly yeah. sins. This is something that for some reason or other people don't write about. Why is that? Uh I think it's an un, it's an uncomfortable topic, uh, and it's and it, and it hides. Uh, it's in the nature of cowardice to hide from us, and so uh, I, you know, you're right. There's no other book on it. Uh, this is the radio debut of of cowardice studies. Thanks for for having me on, um, and uh, it, Leslie can talk about how actual instant instances of cowardice c- tend to get uh, disappeared uh, from the historical record, uh, and so. Uh, yeah, Kierkegaard spoke about it some, but uh, there's there's not a uh, there's not another book with with cowardice uh, as its subject through and through. Um, and there's so many books about courage too, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, you know, and a lot of it depends. And, and Gordon, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I am going to bring Leslie into this too. But um, and I now realize that somebody who's the editor of the quotable Kierkegaard is going to have a Kierkegaard quote for everything I ask about. But, <laughs> That's not true. Um, <laughs> but um, so, but uh, okay, I have to. I'm going to bring out another, and this is uh, I'm really kind of getting into uh, a much more. Um, uh, kind of uh, esoteric and and uh, kind of higher cultural studies area here, but I want to talk about Dr. McCoy on Star Trek. Um, okay, so like everybody in Star Trek is really brave. I mean, nobody nobody ever, you know, in any of the iterations of Star Trek, there just aren't any people who go, wow, I just don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, I'm really afraid. I mean, the only person who ever does anything like that is Dr. McCoy, and occasionally he will say to Captain Kirk, 
we don't know what's out there, Jim. You know, you don't know what you're getting us into, Jim. You know, or something like that. Not that he's afraid exactly, but he's he he voices doubt. He voices doubt, and he raises. And it seems to me, sort of for the for one's own preservation or for collective preservation of a group. It's it's sort of good to have a Dr. McCoy if you only have um, a, a Captain Kirk's, if you have, uh, you know, a thousand Captain Kirk's po- populating your starship, you, maybe you are going to get blown out of the heavens pretty soon. So, so th- th- it raises the question whether, for, well, first of all, I don't know whether that's cowardice on Dr. McCoy's part, but something other than courageous resolve seems to be, you know, a, 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 a part of human character worth valuing. I realize that wasn't a question, but do something <laughs> with it. Kierkegaard says that. Yeah, see, I knew I knew that. No, no uh, I think Aristotle has, is very uh, astute here. He says that, that courage is this mean between uh, foolhardiness and uh, cowardliness. And so to be too foolhardy to be uh, is not bravery for him. And so it's a, it's a mean between things. And it's not a matter of uh, being fearful. Courage is this, issue, this ability to overcome fear, to deal with it. I train professional and amateur boxers and uh, – and I, I see that as one of the one of a great place where people actually get some work with dealing with here. And for someone like Aristotle, we can't get develop a certain virtue if we don't get any practice with the relevant emotions. Actually, well, I do. I said I was going to bring uh, Leslie into this, but let me ask you one uh, disgustingly male question about this uh, first. Since you mentioned the boxers, because I, I I think I can draw a line between the boxers and Achilles. Okay, so Achilles is incredibly brave. Achilles never wavers, but also Achilles doesn't really think anybody can hurt him. So right. you sort of wonder whether that's true courage or not. He basically kills everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I mean, you know, is, that, is he braver? Is he braver than Hector? And one thing that I've noticed a little bit with boxers is the the first time they get hit really hard. You know, young boxers, the first time they get hit hard enough so that, like, time slows down and maybe mm-hmm, they get mm-hmm. a standing count from the ref or something like that, that's kind of a revelation. A lot of boxers go through their early careers. If they're good, they go through their early early careers, and they're kind of Achilles, right? They basically hit other people and other people run away from them uh, or lie down on the canvas. I mean, do you notice that, too? Is there a moment among boxers when they suddenly realize that they're mortal and that they have to deal with all these things on another basis? Oh, yes. There's a big cutoff between the people who can take a punch like that, be disoriented and continue soldier on. And those who just melt down when that happens, it's a, a huge issue in uh, getting to the elite level in boxing. I have to say that the yeah. only time I got into a boxing ring, the three minute round ended with the final 60 seconds of the other boxer literally chasing me around the ring. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but <laughs> that's not cowardice. That's prudence. Yeah. That's no, that prudent. was I, it was so so even beyond cowardice. It was a kind of stark fear. I'm not able to manage the situation. I wasn't even. I, but I if you stuck with if you stuck with it a little bit, then you would. That's right. the beautiful thing to see is. Yeah. People do, do get better at dealing with their fear. I mean, I think some of the people who are running down Bunker Hill, too, aren't engaging in an act of moral reckoning. Just something else took over. Mm-hmm. Some limbic system mm-hmm. took over and said, no, this is the situation where we leave. Mm-hmm. We're getting and out that of here happened right in, now. That happened in Normandy, too, apparently. That's oh, yeah. Thing. People, you, they said the people that were asked about the, the movie about uh, uh, the brothers. Uh, saving Private, uh, private, private yeah, Ryan. Saving yeah, Saving Private Ryan said yeah. the one thing that he missed was that in the beginning, people were running all over the place. Right. I mean, one of the reasons that D-Day was staged, at the beginning of the movie, you can see that incredible fear. But, of course, you have a landing craft coming up to a beach. There aren't that many places where you can go. Hmm. So you either have to get off the landing craft or or stay there and get shot. All right, let's take a quick break here. I want to bring Leslie Gordon into this conversation. We're going to go right to the Civil War for a while. uh, And we're also uh, going to talk about gender. You know, cowardice is almost exclusively the province of men. Or is it? Cowardice. The history 
What would you consider to be a cowardly act? I guess simply it would be when you could help somebody else and you didn't. You chose a selfish route instead. Taking uh, unfair advantage of something. You spot a situation and say, oh, I can take advantage of that when it's going to be putting someone else at risk or compromising them in some way. Knowingly doing something to take advantage of someone who's weaker or less able. Bullying, bullying. I see it as a cowardly act. Hit and run. Leaving some someone in a place where you know that the harm will come to them and not doing anything to help them. It's some great reporting from the streets by our own Jackie Filson. Uh, and it does sort of exhibit the fact that uh, if you ask people about cowardice, um, they have things to say about it. They don't draw a blank anyway. Uh, you've been listening to our guest, uh, Chris Walsh and uh, Gordon Marino. I want to add to the conversation Leslie Gordon, a professor of history at the University of Akron. She's edited and authored several books in her most recent book, A Broken Regiment, the 16th Connecticut's Civil War. Um, and, and so, uh, Leslie Gordon, you've been listening to a lot of this conversation so far. Let's focus in on the Civil War for a second. It's certainly there uh, in, in Chris's book as well. Uh, this is a, a situation in which um, special things may have to be done to motivate uh, young men to, to, to join this effort where there's so much death and it's in such a problematic cause. Um, so, so what was done in terms of the invocation of our notions of, of cowardice to, to, to generate enthusiasm for battle in the, in the Civil War? Give us some examples. Well, uh, the men at the time, or people at the time in general, the Civil War, they, they actually had a very clear sense, I would say, of of what was courage and what was cowardly, uh, what was courageous and what was was cowardly, particularly when it came to behavior in in battle, just just keeping their self control, um, holding up bravely, uh, following uh, orders. Um, you know, the sense of, of uh, a historian named Gerald Linderman calls it cool courage, right? So that sense of self restraint so important to people in the 19th century, the sense of masculinity. Um, and, and so I think that really, it, when the war began, it, it, it didn't seem to be, a, there didn't seem to be a lot of question, and it was a, a sense of character, that, you, it, that you, were, you were either brave or you were, you were a brave person or you were a cowardly person, right? It was inherent in your, in your personality, in, in your sense of self. And so the battle really, truly was a test of character, uh, and so, you know, Chris talks about this quite a, quite a bit, of course. So that if you if you break down in battle and you fail, and it's public, that that can be it for you. Um, that can shame you and brand you um, as a as a person, um, as a group of people. I've been really interested in following um, units. My my book is about a, a a unit from Connecticut that that failed. They failed at the Battle of Antietam, and they talk openly about. Uh, being cowardly, and so that so intrigued me because, as Chris was saying, uh, people don't talk about this, and historians have been, uh, frankly, uh, hesitant to talk about it and write about it. And in, in the case of the Civil War, a lot of Civil War historians have claimed that it's just not, uh, it, it just doesn't. There weren't that many men that were behaved this way, and there's not that much evidence, and and let's just move on. And, and of course, there is, there, there is quite a bit about bravery and courage and great work done on that topic, but nothing really uh, very much until recently about cowardly, cowardice. 
Well, we have, there's several ways to look at it, too, and several ways to examine it. One of them, uh, obviously, are contemporary letters, letters written at the time, back to home, about how people are really feeling and often maybe saying things that they wouldn't necessarily say in other kinds of more public contexts, uh, you know, within their regiment or something like that. We'll come to that in a second. But there are also just, there are basic stories, and there was there's a process, a military process, of dealing with cowardice. You want to talk about the 11th from New York, the uh, the fireman? Yeah. Uh, go, go ahead, tell us right. that story. Right. So, so actually, my my next book, which is I'm trying to do a larger prod project on the question of cowardice in the Civil War, and so I'm using regiments, examples of regiments accused of cowardice in battlefield, um, in, you know, in moments of combat. And so I've got a few case uh, studies, and I'm following one example is is the 11th New York. They were fire zouaves. They were firemen from New York City. And they uh, join early. They're some of the very first volunteers. Uh, they had quite quite a storied background. Uh, there are a lot of Irish immigrants. Their commander is somebody named uh, Colonel uh, Elmer Ellsworth, who dies very early in the war. Uh, in, in a whole nother, <laughs> it's a whole nother story. But but anyway, they end up at Bull Run, which was a complete debacle for the Union. Um, and pretty much everybody runs away, the federal uh, troops there. But they are singled out. There's actually a, an investigation, uh, a congressional investigation into the battle. And they are singled out, I found, um, by some of their commanders, by politicians. And they are blamed for the entire failure of the Union. And their courage is called into question, which I found so intriguing, because they, they were firemen. And, and, and they... in a, they really represented this kind of, you know, symbolic of, of being manly, of they saved people's lives, literally. And here they were being called into question because they had a moment of panic and they ran away. Um, and this, this haunted them. Let me just switch this over to Chris for a second, because I think this is, you know, you can extend this to a lot of different areas, because, in fact, in, in any time of conflict, we need these, uh, we need two narratives, really. We need narratives of, of cowardice, and we need uh, narratives of bravery. So fast forward again to 9-11, so the, the American narrative was these terrorists were cowards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then the other American narrative was to tell these stories of, speaking of Leslie's firemen, other kinds of firemen. You know, there was this right. incredible... Um, storytelling that went on about the risks that were taken. Because you have to have both of those stories going on, I think, to achieve the kind of control that you want over the situation. Right. And uh, without the coward sort of in the shadows, uh, the the courage, the testimonies about courage seem kind of hollow. Uh, I think uh, Leslie actually quotes a Confederate uh, commander saying in a report about how wonderful his troops had, had behaved um, at the end that it would it would be remiss of him were he not to mention that some troops had flown uh, from battle uh, and and that in part says you know what it was it was scary there and so the people who stayed did something extraordinary you know um Gordon you, you talked uh, before about how, how uh, Kierkegaard says that uh, you overcome one fear uh, by by fearing something else uh, and and uh, J- I, somebody just tweeted me a, qu- a quote from Jim Hightower the opposite of courage is not cowardice it's conformity even a dead fish can go with the flow and so I mean that sort of gets back to this question you know in the stories that Leslie tells uh, and what's Chris Chris is talking about you know uh, one of the reasons to not be a coward is fear of the kind of humiliation that was 
heaped uh, on the 11th uh, after Bull Run. And, and so from the perspective, through the prism of philosophy, once again, you sort of have to ask that question. Well, is, that, is, is bravery when it really amounts to going with the flow, if, uh, if bravery amounts to, in fact, that fear of humiliation, should it have the same kind of moral status as bravery that happens effectively when nobody's looking? No, probably not. No, the intentions would be different. But I think we also I think we also remember there's also narratives about overcoming cowardliness, like the red badge of courage. Uh, very important, right? Where the, where the guy runs in the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. And he's afraid. Yeah. And uh, also the, in the Bible, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is of uh, Peter. And they come to Peter the, when, uh, and ask him if he's um, if he knows Jesus. And three times he denies Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And yet later on he comes and he's 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 uh, crucified. You know. So also narratives about overcoming, uh, recognizing you react uh, overcome by fear, and then coming back and overcoming that. Of course, you know, every narrative has a purpose, too. And uh, one analysis of the, of the Peter narrative is this is effectively uh, a story of the uh, – it's almost a joke that Peter's the rock, right? He's the rock on which I will build this church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look, look at what yeah. a flimsy rock he is. And still, with such flimsy material – the the church can go forward even though here's this guy who backs down three times you know he's still he's good enough because that's the actual power of the gospel itself it's such a strong story and, and Jesus uh, is such a true thing that you, you don't even really need great raw material I mean that's but it's sort of cowardly part of the right but it's cowardly to, I mean it seems to me that if you do an act of if you act coward with cowardice at some point and uh, it's cowardly to get to give up on yourself then the brave thing to do is say I reacted that way and now I'm going to change. Um, yeah, yeah, I would come, just yeah. add that you know, in the cases and the stories that I've been able to to find, and these men, they're, they are very self conscious of that. That they have to mm-hmm. they have to prove that they that it was a mistake, that that you know that they did something wrong. But but oftentimes, and they 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 uh, commit, uh, you know, they they go into battle and they perform heroically. Another uh, group of men that I've been looking at at the 126 New York. These are men that, that end up at Harper's Ferry. They're captured. They, they're branded with the term coward, the Harper's, Harper's Ferry cowards. They're at Gettysburg, and, and they're on the other side of it, and three of them win the Congressional Medal of Honor. And mm. two uh, into the post-war, they are obsessed with still that, that brand, that they're cowards. And they, they still talk about it amongst themselves, the veterans. That, that even the blood sacrifice, right, of Gettysburg, even standing there and being called heroes, you know, going back to Gettysburg and building their monument to themselves, the shame of Harper's Ferry haunted them. So I, I think that it's it still, it, it really kept with them. And I, I think it's so intriguing that, like I said, that people, you know, they wanted to talk about it. They were grappling with it and struggling with it. But historians haven't wanted to talk about it. Um, I want to come back to that. I think this, this is a really interesting thing that you're saying, Leslie. I just want to, uh, Chris, uh, uh, this is something that you look at, in, at, too, this whole idea. Can you come back uh, right. from a cowardice thing? Right. And you and I were talking before the show uh, about Calendar uh, at, uh, at, at uh, Bunker Hill. He's a right. Revolutionary War example of this, right? right. Israel Putnam catches him right. trying to walk away, which is pretty much what a lot of people at Bunker Hill right. was. But he gets singled out, and, right. and so you pick up the story from there. Yeah, and, and he gets uh, cashiered for cowardice, and uh, George Washington... Washington, among his very first orders of business as he takes over uh, command of the Continental Army, is to confirm that uh, conviction and to lament uh, how serious a crime cowardice is. And uh, But Calendar doesn't go away. He loses his officership, but he then continues to fight as a, as a volunteer and exposing himself to danger at every, at every engagement. 
thereafter. And then a, a year later, the Battle of Long Island, he is uh, just about to be killed by uh, British troops, and uh, the British troops uh, commander uh, protects him because the man is so brave. Uh, and he's taken prisoner, and then uh, a little while later is uh, gets back to the Continental Army. George Washington expunges the court-martial. Uh, it's it's in the histories as an example of uh, the kind of the the possibility of redemption and the, and the way the shame of cowardice can drive people to courage. I think it's true what Leslie was saying that um, even, you know ten ten courageous acts don't seem enough to outbalance sometimes the the stain of cowardice. Uh, but that doesn't mean uh, soldiers sometimes don't want to go for that 11th act. Um, I want to also talk a little bit about sort of the stories that groups tell about one another. And Leslie, I'm going to go right to you on this. So one of the points that Chris uh, makes in his book, uh, Cowardice, is that um, that black regiments uh, in the Civil War uh, felt as though there was sort of a special burden on them that somehow or other there, there was sort of a trope in the culture that said that uh, that, that black uh, blacks could be spontaneously courageous uh, in, in the heat of a moment, uh, but maybe not capable of the sustained discipline that uh, that regimental fighting w- would involve. And I know this is something that you've looked at, too, that there are different stories being told by one group about another in terms of cowardice. Well, it, of course, it goes to, to the heart of questions of, of masculinity and race, because when you have um, you know, this the, the country at the time, and you, it, the South is a slaveholding um, uh, Region that justified the institution by claiming that you know, black males were incapable of of self autonomy. You just have to have a completely different definition of of masculinity for them. So suddenly, to to change that and 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 to uh, accept the notion of black males as soldiers, that, that just flips everything, right? And and to say that they can stand alongside white soldiers and fight as well. Um, so, so yeah, so it, it, it became very co- complex to, to assume that black soldiers could be courageous. And, um, you, you know, it, it, in fact, in many cases, when black men were allowed to fight, because in many cases they weren't, they were kept in, in garrison duty and they were sort of, you know, doing, uh, doing the kind of work that, you know, the, the white soldiers didn't do didn't want to do this kind of thing. They, they weren't allowed. They weren't allowed to fight in the front lines very often. Um, they, they did fight quite courageously and took, took really high casualties. But um, in most cases, they, it was not deemed by white officers that, that you know, they, they would be reliable troops because, like I said, it challenged people's conceptions, whites' conceptions of the time of what, you know, what it meant to be a, a black male. You know, this this kind of group storytelling goes on all the time, and it, it's not um, confined to race, and it's not it's not confined anywhere. We'll come back to the gender part, because I think that's really interesting. But, you know, I mean, even I'm even thinking um, about France, all right? And there, there's this sort of notion that France is quick to surrender, uh, that um, that France, you know, uh, well, that France is quick to surrender, that they, they rather, and it, it, it certainly dates back to World War II, but it came back up uh, at the time of the Iraq conflict, where they would join in, and, right. and so we suddenly had freedom fries and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and I mean, if you sort of look at it, 
I'm not sure that uh, any military historian would agree with you about this. And, you know, Belgium and Holland wanted to stay neutral in World War II. That didn't work out so well. Switzerland succeeded in staying neutral. I'm not sure that's sort of – actually, I'll go to the moral philosopher here, uh, to, to, to Gordon Reno here. But, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how that's morally superior to a country fighting for a while, getting freaked out after Dunkirk, getting overrun uh, eventually. Uh, and then – I mean, the Vichy government wasn't so great. But it, it's just sort of interesting how we've just decided somehow that France, although they have this sort of gigantic, ferocious military history, that France and France and French people are cowards. Yes, it, it, it is. And, uh, but I think uh, part of the reason they didn't fight so long was because they had lost so many people in World War I. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a lot of troops. And uh, uh, an outmoded battle strategy French. and a bad plan and Maginot Line didn't work. Yeah. I mean, there's a million reasons why it made sense. But they also had, they were, they were also depleted of, of people. From yeah. the First World War, I think they had sixty percent casualties or something like that. Um, but I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a Kierkegaard guy, not a military historian. No. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Leslie, what were you going to say? No, I'm sorry. I was saying those ethnic questions came up, you know, not as strongly for the French certainly in the Civil War, but because there were so many German immigrants and Irish immigrants, there were questions about the the, the fighting capabilities of those groups, mm. um, and and the, and Germans and, and Irish were very self conscious about it. And you know, and there's 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 a great uh, stories, of course, about Fredericksburg when Irish um, men are are involved in this these really suicidal charges over and over over again at Murray's Heights, um, and th- they took terrible terrible losses. And and you know, there there are tensions with the, the Irish commitment to the war over this question of. of, of being a, a war over slavery, but you know they they were proving themselves that they could fight and they could be accepted as American citizens. That they were just as good, you know, as native-born um, Americans in the, in those kind of moments. And, and there were questions about Germans. And and famously at the Battle of Chancellorsville, the Eleventh Corps, which was largely German immigrants, uh, they had a terrible time at the Battle of Chancellorsville. And so that that spread to this notion that you know German. Uh, immigrants couldn't be trusted, right, as soldiers. So, yeah, this, 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 this these sort of uh, rolled into larger uh, xenophobic fears uh, going on in the country, you know, about about immigration and and manifested themselves toward these these different groups. All right, let's use the remainder of this segment here. Uh, I want to leave some time uh, for the uh, final segment for um, a conversation about cowardice uh, in 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 non-battle, non-military situations because I think that's gigantic. It's a uh, fascinating final uh, chapter of Chris's book. But let's quickly talk about this issue of gender. And uh, Chris, I'll start with you, but I, and I know Leslie has a lot to say about this too. But one of the things you look at in the book, and it's not confined to World War II, although I think we see the beginnings of a certain kind of at least um, – uh, formalized propaganda about this in in, in the Civil War. It's mm-hmm. kind of like suddenly there are, I think, even then broadsides of some kind addressed to women. Is your man a real right. man, right? Right. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking in uh, uh, World War One. World War One is uh, yeah. maybe what I'm thinking. Yeah. About. yeah. Um, uh, but but it goes back farther, long farther than that. I mean, um, the Spartan half the Spartan sayings that uh, live on have to do with um, women in particular mothers telling their sons, you know, go to battle, come back with your shield or on it. Um, and, uh, but in, in, there's a, a poster in the book, uh, about, um, is your young, uh, is He's looking you, in the wrong side you, of the window or something? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's yeah. a man looking out the shop window. He's a, a merchant of some kind. And outside there's men marching by. 
there's a poster. Uh, has your has your man signed up? And if he's and the implication is and made ex- quite explicit in some cases is if you haven't uh, if if your your man hasn't uh, gone off to war, then he's he's not going to honor his duty to his country, nor will he honor his duty as a husband. Uh, and and those those are you know in the f- white feathers in in World War One too with their stung particularly when they came from women as it, they sometimes did. That's right. So you cannot possibly be this whole man right. if you're a coward. And and I mean there are counter narratives from the very beginning. I think you mentioned Aristophanes and Lysistrata this sort of notion that women maybe do see things a little bit differently. Right. Yep. Uh, fighting all the time isn't always so great. But Leslie I'm assuming as you're looking at this uh, at this uh, at the Civil War in sharp focus this whole question of what it means to be a man uh, has got to be invoked very heavily by the people trying to get young men to do this fighting. That's right. And and you see it you see it in the public rhetoric that Chris talks about um, you see it in these exhortations uh, from whether it, it comes, you know, like the governor of Connecticut, Governor Buckingham is telling the men, you know, talking about manhood and talking about the protection of families. Or you see it in private letters. Uh, and I found a quote from a, a young soldier who, who died uh, at the Battle of, of Suffolk, and he's telling his comrades that, you know, that he wants his, his family to know that he did not die a coward. Um, so, uh, the, the connections with, yes, conceptions of manhood, cowardice, family, it's all interconnected. It's so important. Um, and it ties that, you know, sort of home front, battle front, uh, intimately uh, in, in, these, in these men's, uh, in, in their worlds. Um, you know, maybe as we sort of come towards the end of this uh, segment, um, uh, you know, Gordon, one thing that, that that I've thought a little bit about in pondering this subject and going through Chris's book is that, you know, we uh, we equate uh, bravery with virtue and cowardice, therefore, with virtue's opposite. But there really is no guarantee uh, of the first linkage anyway. I mean, one uh, example that sprung into my mind was Benedict Arnold, who was in a tremendously brave guy. And in some of these Revolutionary War situations where the troops were faltering, you know, he'd round them all back up and make them go back in there and he'd be leading the charge. And nobody questioned the bravery of Benedict Arnold. Now, the, the, the honesty of brave and the patriotism of Benedict Arnold are long gone uh, for, the mo- for most people. So, th- I mean, that's an interesting question. I don't know how it's dealt with philosophically by Kierkegaard or anybody else. That, but it doesn't seem to me anyway that bravery and, and high virtue are the same thing. No, but there's, a, there's a, certainly a question in philosophy of what the relationship between the virtues are. Can you be brave and not have moderation? So uh, that's a perennial question in philosophy. But I think one of the things about Kierkegaard is that he doesn't he, – it doesn't – when he talks about cowardliness, it's not in the context of the military. It's a, For him, it's a failure to uh, acknowledge the, the good and the noble and to – the opposite of uh, cowardliness for Kierkegaard is resolution, mm-hmm. decision mm-hmm. to act. And uh, he talks about all the ways that we avoid action uh, and um, – uh, um, by admiration, you know, I, I see somebody, I admire them, but I don't try to do. I say, oh, that's a wonderful way to live. I wish I, you know, but I don't try to. I don't try to do it myself. Right? And he considers that cowardliness. So, um, well, that, that sets us up perfectly for the the third segment of this conversation. As we leave the battlefield, though, um, I guess we'll go back briefly to Napoleonic times, to the plight of a young uh, Russian villager who uh, is with his family when war breaks out. Have you heard the news? Napoleon has invaded Austria. Why, is that a Courvoisier? At last, a chance to taste the glories of battle. Well, check with me when it's over. I'll be in the game room. No, Boris, you're going to fight. I'm going to fight. You're going to have your head examined. We leave the day after tomorrow. 
<sighs> Fellas, I'm a pacifist. I don't believe in war. He doesn't believe in war, eh? Ha! Napoleon, eh? he believes in war. What are you going to do when the French soldiers rape your sister? I don't have a sister. That's no answer. Well, who are they going to rape? Ivan, they'll throw up. Don't disgrace me in front of my friends! What good is war? We kill a few Frenchmen, they kill a few Russians, next thing you know, it's Easter. Boris, you can't be serious. You're talking about Mother Russia. Oh, she's not my mother. My mother's standing right here, and she's not gonna let her youngest baby get shrapnel in his gums. Get away from me! I can't believe what I'm seeing. Our brother has a yellow streak down his back. No, it's not down. Runs across. Boris, you're a coward! Yes, but I'm a militant coward. Boris, medals will get medals. Take it easy, will you, Ivan? You gotta cut down on your raw meat. He'll go and he'll fight. And I hope they will put him in the front lines. Thanks a lot, Mom. My mother, folks. Or the land of the free and the home of the plucky but not reckless. Yeah, that doesn't sound right. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Thanks again to Jackie Filson for her street reporting. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Dr. Zachary Smith. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff yelling, Run away! Run away! from a nonspecific threat, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose ponders Bill Cosby, Mike Nichols, and other weighty matters. And now... Back to Colin. Okay, we're back. We have a final segment here. Not enough time for a really uh, fascinating uh, part of this conversation, which is, I mean, most of us, most of us are not going to be on the battlefield. And most of us probably won't even be in a situation, we hope, where the Titanic is sinking and we have to give the lifeboat to somebody else. And uh, although, by the way, speaking of some of the stuff that Leslie Gordon was talking about before, uh, even that story of the, of the Titanic was often used as a sort of a form of social control, too. I mean, one of the I read newspaper uh, editorials from the time where they said, well, of course, the men gave the lifeboats to the women because, you know, that's the way things are. And women shouldn't want the right to vote because there's like this whole natural order of things. So there's always some kind of social control <laughs> narrative going on, even in these situations. But most of the time, uh, and, and this goes back to what Gordon was saying, most of the time, it's just how we live our lives. So in Chris's book, there's this great quote from Rilke. There's always a great quote from Rilke. I mean, Gordon's got Kierkegaard. I've got Rilke. He says, we must assume our existence as broadly as we in any way can. Everything, even the unheard of, must be possible in it. That is at bottom the only courage that is demanded of us, to have courage for the most strange, the most singular, and the most inexplicable that we may encounter, that mankind has in this sense been cowardly, has done life endless harm. The experiences that are called visions, the whole so-called spirit world, death, all those things that are so closely akin to us have by daily parrying been so crowded out of life that the senses with which we could have grasped them are atrophied to say nothing of God. So, um, and this kind of lines up pretty well with Kierkegaard in a lot of ways. This comes up, Chris, all the time. It's there in E.M. Forster, that whole notion of saying yes to life. And, you know, you don't want to be like Cecil Weiss or whoever that character yeah. is in, in, in Room with a View. That, that part of courage or the, or the cowardice to be avoided is the failure to grasp life in all of its possibilities. Yeah, to, to live. Uh, and the, this uh, classic uh, depiction of that that the, the book alludes to again and again is, is just inside uh, the gate of hell in Dante's Inferno where uh, Dante sees uh, countless uh, souls wailing and slapping at flies and wasps and, and wants to know from his guide Virgil – What's the deal with these guys? And uh, Virgil doesn't want to talk about them. 
they're thereby st- sticking with that tradition of of not wanting to talk about cowardice. But 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 he does tell us a little bit, and what what he says is that these are these are people who never chose in life, uh, who didn't side with one side or another, and so never having truly lived, they're uh, they're stuck in kind of the lobby of of hell, not bad enough to to go to the inferno itself, and certainly there's no place for them above. You know, um, Kierkegaard, I think, uh, Gordon, does sort of talk about the various ruses and guises that we concoct uh, as an alternative to this really kind of visceral engagement with life. You know, I mentioned uh, uh, Forster's Room with a View, that character Cecil Weiss, I think Daniel Day-Lewis plays him in the movie, being this kind of effete intellectual, like there are more important things. You know, I could live at this very cerebral intellectual level uh, and, and, and thus maybe duck out on some of these scarier challenges. I don't know if you want to elaborate a little bit or tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, but, but I, I think uh, I think for Kierkegaard and and, uh, and others, uh, the uh, cowardliness is, is clinging to life, not being able to let go of yourself. And uh, and while we're not all going to be on the t- we're not going to be on the Titanic, or it might not be in the Civil War, we are going to be in situations where our, our ship is going down. And the question is, can you transcend that? Can you still be a, a loving, good person when you're going under? And I, I, I think the, I think that that's what courage is, uh, is a lot of, uh, about. Uh, um, not so much uh, uh, engaging all possible choices, but rather not not clinging to life, not not not, not being able to let go of yourself at some level. Leslie, you may have several possible reactions to, to what we're talking about. One one thing I, I know that you you have looked at, I think, is sort of how how we tell ourselves stories after um, after the war, after the challenges. Uh, Hank Aaron or somebody said, the older I get, the better I used to be. Uh, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that happened post-Civil War, right, was that the storytelling uh, adjusted to diminish cowardice and to accentuate bravery. That's right. And, and one of the things I think as a historian is I, I feel that these, because people did talk about it and, and, they, and they did, they they worried about it, and then they did things that they thought were cowardly, um, and then they didn't want to talk about it. And I think all of that has to be recognized. And there's no way to say that, right, that, oh, to sort of wag a finger and say, oh, this is shameful, right, and to look back. And, you know, and I don't know if that's some of the reason why historians haven't wanted to talk about it. But um, as Chris said, you know, it's not, it's, it's not a pleasant topic. <laughs> um, but war isn't a pleasant topic. I mean, let's be honest, of course. But the thing is that uh, I found that I was really amazed at how much, when you start to listen and you really start to pay attention and look for these things, how much it's in, you know, these topics, the the mention of it, it's in the records and it's in the sources. And, And then you realize, to me, it's a very human reaction. And, 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 and it makes sense. Well, of course, people are, are frightened and scared and really struggling with these kind of questions. And so of co- and I feel like we, we need to recognize that and hear their voices and then realize that, and understand why they, they also didn't want to talk about it. They wanted to talk about it, and then a, a time came when they didn't want to talk about it at all. You know, Chris Walsh, we're almost out of time, uh, but obviously you're already hard at work on cowardice, too. Uh, this takes place uh, mostly in, in the world of digital life. And I, I do think about this a lot. You know, I asked about gamers at the beginning. I'll 
you know, I'll get that answer someday. But, you know, part of cowardice, I think, also is being unable to stand up and, and do the right thing or say the right thing uh, in, in situations that call for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so this is, you know, it's there in the dialogues, even between Thoreau and Emerson. It's possibly apocryphal, but I think mm-hmm. Emerson visits Thoreau in jail and, and, and says, you know, Henry, why are you here? And he says, Ralph, why aren't you here? Because mm-hmm. uh, Thoreau has, has gone to jail for his convictions. But, you know, living in this digital era where so many things are done anonymously and yeah. people, I, I, I actually have used the term coward mm-hmm. in, in dealing with people who show up on comment threads of things that I've written. I was like, who are you right. with your nasty little avatar name? Right. Uh, and, and I think that may be another interesting area anyway to, to look at sort of bravery versus cowardice. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I think the idea in, in some respects, the, the trolls, uh, the, the nasty comments, um, it, I felt I've wanted to say things to and call those people cowards, even though I also feel like um, that is to fall into the, uh, the 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 tendency to call bullies cowards, which we heard from the people on the street, which is goes way back. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're basically taking advantage of their superior position in the case of in the case of the commenters, their anonymity, and saying whatever they want, um, and. And I so I would prefer, and I'm I'm trying in the book to talk about it a little more uh, precisely, and think about cowardice in terms of duty and fear. And so, you know, a coward is somebody who fails in duty because of excessive fear. Um, and so, ultimately, I would hope that, or I know in my own life, I'm trying to think of not how I can be courageous, but how I can avoid being cowardly. Cowardice can make me think critically about a fear and more critically about duty. What should I be doing? What it is? What is it that I'm so afraid of? Um, and uh, and so I'm not, I'd be interested to hear what video gamers yes. make of it. And and of course one and one reaction is, wait a second, they're playing video games. Are they? What are they avoiding? Right, and what are they risking? Too? Right, right. Um, all right, we have to go. Uh, some assigned viewing for this. Uh, the movie Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep where they go to the afterlife. And it turns out that in this afterlife, you kind of are judged by these tiny little decisions, uh, micro decisions about bravery versus cowardice. The coward of the county. I can tell you're a coward, Wolf. You don't have a mark on you, and cowards don't have scars. No, 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 look, I have this one on my pinky. I tripped when I was running away from an alpaca. It was just so fluffy. 